This morning we are continuing in the book of Luke, chapter 10, and we're going to talk about the 70. Now, remember, Jesus has sent out the 70. There was that, that moment when Jesus gets talking about discipleship and says, if you're not willing to give all to be my disciple, you're not worthy. And the three examples of the three folks who came and, oh, they wanted to be his disciple. And he said, well, okay, if you're going to be my disciple, just remember that the birds have nests and the foxes have holes in the ground. But if you're going to follow me, I can't guarantee you'll have any idea where you put your head on a pillow tonight. And are you still willing to follow? And of course, that guy disappeared. And then the guy who wanted to to hang around until his father died. You know, I, I want to be there for the burial of my father, uh, most likely so I could get into the inheritance. I, I need my finances straightened out, and then I'll follow you. And, of course, Jesus is like, um, that's, yeah, you can't do that. You can't put anything in front of Jesus. And the guy's like, well, let me go home and, and just say goodbye to everybody. Make sure that everybody's fine with me doing this and my relationships are all good. And it's like, no, no, if you're going to do this, you need to do this. If you're determined to follow Jesus, you need to follow him. You can't put your hand on the plow and then, and then start looking back. That's, you're, you're, it's not going to happen. You cannot be double-minded about this. You either give everything you've got to follow Jesus, or you don't follow Jesus. That's it. And so we come to the 70. And, and initially, it might seem kind of, oh, you know, Jesus went through three people who weren't going to follow him. But the fact is, he looked out to the disciples who were with him. And he chose out 70 of them. And these 70, they're willing to give it all. And he sends them out and says, don't bring anything. Don't bring a change of clothing. Don't bring a money bag. Bring absolutely nothing. Just go out there and trust me and I will take care of you. And the 70 are like, yeah, let's go. And they went. Two by two. And this morning's passage, they come back. He sends them out. We don't know exactly how long they're out there. They're out there for a while, maybe months. They're, they're out there. They go out into all of, the, all of the towns, the various towns. Remember he said to them, if the town receives you, great. Your peace will stay with them. If they reject you, then just shake the dust off your feet and go to the next town. Just, just go. Go out into Israel and preach that the king has come. And the kingdom is here. And so they do. They go out. They do it. And, and they have power. They have the power to heal all sicknesses, injuries, or disease. They have the power to cast out demons. And so they come back, and they reply. They, they, verse 17, the 70 return with joy. I mean, this is great. And they say, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. There is power in the name of Jesus. Yes, there is. And so they go out and they say, we went out and, and even the demons, and, and indicating clearly that we had other things we could do too, which, of course, they did. They could, they could give the lame to walk. They could take the injured. They could restore anything that's wrong with anybody. But what really impressed them was even the demons. Even the demons. Now, when we start thinking about demons and Satan and demonic powers and these kinds of things, there's two approaches that we tend to take. We can, if we're not careful, we kind of swing the pendulum onto the side where we become almost obsessed with it. We get to where we think that Satan is um, maybe not exactly the equal of God, but 
but kind of close. We, we get this idea that Satan is almost omnipresent, that Satan is like everywhere. He's all over the place. And any bad thing that happens, any kind of, any kind of trial or difficulty or hardship that comes into our lives, we start thinking, well, that's, there's Satan. Boy, he's, he's right after me one more time. Um, and whatever happens in our lives, we, we might kind of think that Satan is, is going to come get us and that Satan is chasing us down. Um, Really? You know, we need to stop for just a second and think about that and, and ask ourselves, are we sure we want to we wanna go there? Satan is an enormously powerful being, without a doubt, and he does. We, we do want to be careful. He roams about like a roaring lion looking to take us all out. He would love nothing more than to destroy us, to, to drag us into some kind of immorality or dishonesty or something that would destroy our reputation. And we need to be careful, for sure. But really, to think that Satan, before the throne of God, accusing, is, is he's going to stop. Heaven itself is, is going to turn its focus from the rise and fall of nations and from famine and pestilence and earthquakes and fires and diseases that are floating around out there. All of that is going to stop, and Satan is going to stop paying attention to all that so that he can come down and make our car not start this morning. Are you sure? I mean, really? Your car didn't start this morning? You think Satan was behind that? Really? You know, there's a moment where we need to kind of stop and go, you know, maybe my life actually isn't all that important. Maybe the fall of the nations and... All of these various things are probably, Satan's not stopping to pay attention to all of them just so he can kind of, you know, make my car not start or kill my battery or something. Um, At the same time, we don't want to get to the place where we think, well, Satan has nothing to do with anything. Satan is just some kind of, who knows what, you know, some kind of evil presence maybe. But the fact is, we're plenty evil enough all on our own. Do we really need someone encouraging that? Uh, We don't want to get to the place where we don't think Satan exists at all or that he doesn't have an influence. But I think what we need to realize, the balance we need to come to is to recognize that Satan, sure, he can can prowl around. He he can come after us. He can lead us into some kind of terrible thing. But it's more than that. It's deeper than that. It's more pervasive than that. The reality is that Satan is perfectly happy with just distracting us. That's all. If you get to where you never tell anyone you're a Christian, you just never let it know, be known to anyone that, that you're a believer. You just kind of keep that to yourself. You don't really make any effort to disciple anyone or any effort to actually speak the word of God or to speak the truths of God. You just kind of keep your Christianity to yourself and you go to church on Sunday and that's about it. And you just Otherwise, no one would ever even know you're a Christian. You know what? Satan's perfectly fine with that. That's good. He's, he's happy with that. The fact is that Satan has placed a veil over the world. He has this web of lies and deceits that are so pervasive that the world just kind of comes to their life with a presumption. Most people presume that they're pretty good. In fact, if there is a God, and they're not sure there is one, but if there is a God, they're fairly certain that yeah, there's, yeah they're, they're going to make it. They're okay. And God is okay with who they are. I mean, if there is a heaven, which maybe there isn't, but if there is, yeah, they'll, it'll be okay. You know what? That's a, that is a lie from the pit of hell. 
The fact is we aren't good enough. The fact is we are selfish and proud. The fact is that, that we stand before God condemned. And if you sit around and tell yourself that you're just fine, you don't really need to do anything, and that God is okay with you, that is a lie that is going to lead you to an eternity under the wrath of God. Satan is in charge of everything. As Christians, it would probably be important for us to kind of recognize this. Imagine, just as a way of illustration here, imagine that you play uh, for some sports team. It doesn't really matter what the sport is or who the team is. But you're playing for this team, and you just can't seem to win very often. Just you play, maybe you don't play, maybe you spend most of your time sitting on the bench, but maybe you get out there and you try to play. But even when you get out and really try to play it and really put the effort in it, it seems like we just, I don't know, somehow our opponents always seem to be a step ahead of us. They always seem to, to we don't win, at least not very often, occasionally, but not very often. And then someone comes to you and they say, you know, <clears throat> there was an investigation this team has been losing for years or not winning much for a long time. And an investigation was done, and guess what? <clears throat> we found out. All, you know, the owner of your team? All the other owners absolutely hate the owner of your team, despise the owner of your team. And all the other owners have gotten together, and they've actually rewritten the rules in a very subtle way. But it's subtle such that your team pretty much always loses. In fact, that not being enough, they have <clears throat> bribed the officials. So several of the refs are actually in the pay of the other owners. And in fact, we've heard that they're paying off some of your coaches. In fact, they even have people who are on your team in your uniform who are actually under their pay. You know, that might explain why you're having difficulty winning. That might just lay out for you why it is your team can't seem to win. That's us, folks. That's the church. Jesus has given multiple illustrations. The tares sown among the wheat. Satan is the god of this world. The fact is he owns the stadium. He owns the bases. He owns the umpires. He owns, he owns the fans. The whole world is under the sway of Satan. And we as believers, we're kind of on the other side of all that. We are small. We might seem like we don't win very often. Although, just wait, we'll get to the passage here in just a second. You might, you might think, well, well, we should tell everybody that this is happening. Okay, sure. Um, let's get a mic in front of your face. Let's, let's, you know, let's get somebody to interview you. Let's put you on the radio. But kind of find out, the owners own the TV and the radio, too. They own the newspapers. So anything that is said or written or, sure, we'll put a mic in your face. Why? You want to start spouting off conspiracy theories about how you're, tell me exactly which one of your teammates do you think is actually under the pay of, of the other owner. You want to start pointing out your coaches? You want to start telling us which coach? is that? You know, and suddenly it's like you're just a conspiracy you're just crazy. This is how pervasive the influence of Satan is. It's not like he needs to personally visit any of us. He owns the whole thing. The whole world is against us. 
The entire system is set up to bring about our defeat. And we need to recognize it. We need to realize that it's not going to help us to use the things of the world to try to... We need to continuously rely on the power of God. That's it. It's the power of God. And if we don't rely on the power of God, if we somehow are under the impression that, well, you know, salvation is a matter of just being persuasive enough. If we could just have the right tools of persuasion. We can just kind of you know, study psychology and manipulate people into getting them around to where if we, if we set it up just right, we can make people say yes. We can, we can make people kind of, okay, all that stuff, uh, yeah, no. It's not how it works. It's, it's not, it, it wouldn't help even if you could do it. Even if you could somehow talk people into it, if it's not true repentance... It's not going to work. It is the power of God that is going to transform us. So Satan owns everything, but we, we have the power of God. And the fact is that with the power of God, we still win. Satan has no ability to resist the power of God. Oh, we may own the whole world, but guess what? Jesus has died. The king has come. Jesus now has the keys of death and hell. He's taken them away from Satan. Jesus died to be the captain of our salvation. And this is exactly what he's pointing out in this passage. He sends the 70 out and his, their message their ability to testify is to go out and to tell everyone, guess what? The king is Jesus. We can have the victory. So they go out and they preach. And you know what? Even the demons run when they show up. Demon possession. I, I could talk the rest of the morning on this. I'm not going to make this brief. Demon possession is an interesting thing. There's very little of it in the Old Testament. There's a lot of it when Jesus is here on earth, and then not so much in the rest of the New Testament. In fact, one of the most um, idolatrous places where they burned all the witchcraft books was Ephesus. There was the demon-possessed slave girl there. And yet, when Paul gets around to writing his letter to the church of Ephesus, what he says to defeat the devil is, put on the whole armor of God and stand firm. Resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. That's it. That, that's his whole admonition. That's, there, there is not this ministry of casting out demons. To cast out demons went right along with giving sight to the blind and the lame walking. It was miraculous. It was only the miraculous power of Jesus that allowed anyone to cast out demons. He gives it to the 12 and to the 70, and there's really no great record of it being, in general, given to everybody, any more than any of the other miraculous gifts. So the thing about demon possession, as we see it in the Gospels, no one wanted to be demon-possessed. From the small children who, remember the parents said they, that the child throws himself into the fire and into the water and, and basically has seizures and 
is uncontrolled when the demon comes upon them. You, you look at the guys in the tombs. There's two guys in the tombs who have, they're just, they're literally out of their minds. They're raging lunatics because of what the demons have done to them. All of these people, when you start looking at them and you, and you actually pay attention to the people who are demon-possessed, these are, these are not horrifically immoral, wicked people. These are not people who are, you know, reading tarot cards and, and, and engaging in some kind of mysticism. These are just standard Israelites. What apparently has happened here is with the arrival of Jesus on the scene, the powers of darkness have decided to just take out all the stops here and we're going to do everything we can to stop Jesus. And so people and the crossfire here of the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light, there are people being possessed by demons. They didn't ask for it. It's, it's little kids. You think this little kid is what? Some horrific murderer or something? It's just a child. In fact, any of the people who are demon-possessed, they are not exceedingly great, wicked, immoral sinners. They're just people who have been afflicted with demons. They would like to get rid of their demons. But what can you do? Nobody can do anything. These people are demon-possessed. The demons have shown up. They've made their home in them. They they're very unhappy about it. They'd like to get rid of the demons. People show up and, you know, tell the demon to go away, tell the demon to get lost. Tell, it, it doesn't work. The demon doesn't listen. And it afflicts these people. They are afflicted. They lose their sight. They lose their hearing. They lose their ability to just speak. They go into seizures. They have fits. They go into uncontrollable actions. Nobody wants this. Nobody is happy about this. And there seems to be, in the New Testament, during the Gospels, a huge plague of it in the nation of Israel. Here's an interesting thing for you. Of all of the people who bring their loved ones to the disciples or to Jesus or to the 70, no one is misdiagnosed as demon-possessed. It is so obvious. They never bring anybody to Jesus and say, you know, my, my son is demon-possessed. And Jesus go, well, actually, that's not demon-possession. It was so blatant. Everyone saw it. Everyone knew it. Everyone acknowledged it. What can we do? Well, here's what you do. Here's what the 70 did. Here's what the 12 did. And here's what Jesus did. He cast them out. Suddenly, there was great victory. All of a sudden, people went, you know what? This, well, they should have. This is the power of God. They have authority even over the demons, which, of course, is what the 70 come back and say. I mean, it's like, it's, it's like miraculous. Um, yes, actually, you're right. It is exactly miraculous. That's what Jesus sent you out to do. You are there to declare the coming of the king. And you're going to do that by defeating the power of the enemy, which they went out and did. It's exactly what they did. Even the demons are subject to us. Stop for just a moment, really, and put yourself in the position of the 70. Now, the 70, they're, they're just average folks, right? There's no indication here, even that they went out and, and preached. They just go out and tell what God is doing. They get out and declare that the kingdom of God has come to you. We represent the king. We are here to bring the king to you. They're not Apollos. They're not, they're not great and eloquent in speech. And they're just 
70 disciples of Jesus are going out two by two and letting folks know the kingdom of God is available to you if you'd like. And oh, by the way, we'd be more than happy to heal any kind of disease or illness or sickness anybody's got. Can you imagine having that power? Could you imagine that? Could you imagine being able to go down to the hospital and it doesn't matter what anybody's got? You restore them. I mean, wow, we, the people, just the response. It almost seems hard to believe that Jesus says to them, oh, by the way, if, if any town doesn't accept you, who in the world wouldn't accept these people? What do you mean don't accept them? They can cure anything. But you know what? There are people that didn't accept them. I suspect our society, if you did, in fact, suddenly show up tomorrow, and you could, without any restraint whatsoever, cure anyone of anything, Oh, I imagine they'd, they'd have TVs and, and, and they'd be putting mics in your face. Oh, well, right up until you started giving the honor and glory to Jesus. And then they'd cut that out pretty quick. We have cities in our nation that would crucify Jesus again if they'd get their hands on it. The fact is, this is how this goes. that The nation rejects Jesus. The people, can you imagine? Jesus healed people, and when it comes time, crucify him. Just crucify him. He's not the Messiah we're looking for. I'm really glad he healed people and all, but we were looking for deliverance from our taxes. I mean, we're talking money now. Now, that's what matters. Anyway, we'll get to that when we get to that. So, the fact is, we might be tempted to think, well, because Satan owns everything, because most of the owners are in his pocket, and because he owns the stadium and, and all the refs and all the coaches, and we might think that, well, there's no point in even getting out on the field. Oh, that would be wrong. Oh, no. We get out on the field, declare the gospel, tell the truth, speak it out there. Get out there and speak truth. Why? It works. This is what Jesus says. I'm going to send you out as cheap among the wolves, but get out there anyway. Get out and speak. And watch the power of God. Because it will be of God. You say, well, I'm not eloquent. Great, all the better. All the better. Because if you're not eloquent, then the the glory doesn't go to you, it goes to God. You're like, that was one of the worst gospel presentations ever. I mean, I think I got out there that Jesus died. And you know what? Somebody gets saved, you go, well, that was all of God. Guess what? It's always all of God. We're just the messengers. All we have to do is give the message. Just make sure you give the message. So they do, and they, and they, they experience enormous success. And so they come to Jesus... And there's an interesting little thing that goes on here. They come to Jesus and they say, Lord, even the demons were subject to us. And so Jesus says to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Now, I know you, you want to know what that means, right? Well, I have news for you. Even when we're done here, you're probably still not going to really know exactly what all Jesus is specifically speaking to. But I... We'll give it a go here. One of the interesting things is that you discover this particular little statement of Jesus. There's almost as many interpretations as there are interpreters, not quite, but uh, what does Jesus mean, Satan falling from heaven? There are a variety of verses that refer to uh, to Satan falling from heaven um, and the defeat, the ultimate defeat of Satan. 1 John 3, 8, 
The one who practices sin is of the devil, because the devil has sinned from the beginning. But the Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus showed up to destroy the works of the devil. John 12, 21 will say, Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Satan, he'll be cast out. Hebrews 2.14, therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus, likewise, also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless he who had the power of death, that is, the devil. So Jesus is going to defeat the devil. He's going to reverse the curse, which, of course, is exactly what he does. The curse is death and sin and illness and disease and all of these. Jesus controls all of that. He reverses the curse. But Jesus, if we read what he actually says, does Jesus actually say, I saw Satan falling from heaven like lightning? Because I think that's how we actually read it. We read it that I saw Satan falling from heaven like lightning, and then we kind of go, well, let's see. What, What does he mean there? I saw Satan. Does he mean... Is he referring to, like, way back in the past? Maybe he's referring to, like, Isaiah 14, which primarily speaks about an earthly king, but also obviously applies to Satan. And what it says, Isaiah 14, 12, How are you uh, fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, star of the morning, son of the dawn? You've been cut down to earth, you who weaken the nations. That passage, is, is that what Jesus is referring to? The fall of Satan very early after creation, maybe in the first or second day of creation even. Somewhere in there before Adam and Eve get very far, Satan has already fallen in there. When he says, I saw, as he's maybe referring to the future. He may be referring to what happens in the book of Revelation. Chapter 12, there was a war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war. And they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who was called the devil, and Satan, who deceived the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Is that what Jesus is referring to? Now, you might think, might think, if you read it, Jesus saying, I saw Satan falling from heaven. But here's a really important thing, and this is kind of interesting. Follow me here. You might think, and you might be tempted on occasion to say, boy, if we just really knew the Greek, right? If we we just had a seminary education and really knew the Greek and what it really said, then we might get more things out of our Bible. Well, I have news for you. What you need to do is pay a little more attention to the English grammar that you hopefully, paid some attention to in the, what, 6th, 7th, 8th grade back in there? Don't look at me. I didn't pay attention to it. Till I got to seminary, uh, grammar, that's a little old lady who baked cookies, right? I, you know, I'm here to tell you it was a steep learning curve. Uh, but we hammer you long enough. The fact is, it is, I mean, I could tell you what the Greek actually says. Um, it, it's, it's uh, here, I'll read it for you. It's first-person singular, imperfect, Active indicative verb. That's what it is. You're like, huh? What? What, what did he do? Say that in English again, will you? All right, I will say it in English. It's the word to see, and here's exactly what it says in English. I was watching. Now, 
Okay, imagine, let's go back for a second to the sports illustration I just gave you. Okay, and let's imagine for just a second that instead of us playing, it's our children. Okay, so your children are playing. They're out there playing the game. And they're the Christians. And amazingly enough, they actually win a game. And they come rushing up and they say, did you see that? Did you see that? We won. We actually won. And you reply, I know. I was watching the owner. And he was having a fit. Now, what would people think? Would people like, now wait a minute. Was he talking about the owner, you know, way back when? Is he talking about the first game the owner ever played? Or, or was he maybe talking about the last game the owner's ever going to watch? I, okay, you wouldn't have any of those questions. If, if you said, yeah, I know I was watching the owner, I mean, what does that mean? That means at the exact moment you were playing the game, I, I'm watching the owner. And this is what Jesus is saying. I was watching. Satan, fall. That's what he says. I was watching Satan fall from heaven. While you 70 were out there, you were out there, and you were decimating the kingdom of darkness. You were out there just mopping the field with them. You you come back and you're like, the demons were subject to us. Yep, that's exactly right. You went out there and you dealt a significant blow to the kingdom of darkness. And I was watching the king of darkness, and he fell from heaven like lightning. And that's the expression that we have to kind of go, what does Jesus actually mean by that? And the answer is, we don't really know exactly what he means. Maybe, we, we, you know, I'll throw out my speculation as well as anybody's here. You can do whatever you want with it. Maybe Jesus, uh, Satan, who we know spends time accusing the brethren. Maybe he's in heaven. He's in the business of doing what he does, which is the accuser of the brethren. He's up there working on accusing everybody. And suddenly, he kind of gets the message, hey, we got a serious problem down here. We've got demons. Your followers, they're running for their lives. I mean, they're scattering to the hills. We've got 70 disciples of Jesus who are out here, and they are, you better get down here. You better get down here and see what's going on, because I'm here to tell you, we need help. The disciples of Jesus are just decimating your kingdom. And maybe Satan came out of heaven, which he still has access to, like lightning. Whatever it is, whatever exactly it is that Jesus means, his intent is clear. His intent is, you guys can defeat the devil. You can defeat him. Get out there and preach the truth. And the kingdom of light can defeat the kingdom of darkness. The fact is, Jesus says to them, yeah, yeah, you're right. You guys went out, you cast out the demons, and... I'll affirm that. In fact, I saw more than you did. You guys just saw the demons going. I actually saw Satan come out of heaven like lightning. You can win if we will just get out there and speak the truth. He says, verse 19, behold, I have given you authority. You can tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Nothing will injure you. Now, I think he's speaking 
with a level of literalness. You, you literally might step on a scorpion or a snake. But all, all power of the enemies, he's referring to particularly the 70, that just get out there and do it. The power of God is with you. Don't worry, you're not, you are invincible until God is ready to take you home. You should never allow fear to prevent you from declaring truth. Speak it, declare it. Don't worry, God is going to protect you. God is, God is going to be with you. You know the statement that Jesus says, Lo, I am with you always, even to the ends of the earth. You, you know what precedes that? You know that passage, right? Go out and preach the gospel. That's when he's going to be with us to the ends of the earth. Get out and speak the gospel. Because Jesus is now going to, yeah, he's going to make something very clear. Glad you had victory over the demons. That's, that's good. I, you know, making the demons flee is that's, that's a great thing. But guess what? Verse 20, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. You might think that that's the greatest thing ever. Wow, we can cast out demons. Okay. Yeah, and they could. By the way, I don't think we can. I also don't think that there's a whole lot of demon possession around these days. But even if there is, we don't have that ability. If you run into somebody that you maybe think is demon-possessed, preach the gospel to them. All they need to do is repent of their sin and turn to God, and the Spirit of God will indwell them, and they can't be indwelled with the Spirit of God and some other spirit at the same time. And that will accomplish all that needs to be accomplished. But they actually could cast out demons. And even their ability to do so, Jesus is like, let me tell you, don't, if you're going to start rejoicing, don't rejoice in that. Don't rejoice in this power that you've got to cast out the demons in my name. And that the spirits are subject to you. That's not what really matters. What really matters is this. Your names are recorded in heaven. That's what really matters. It's your eternal destiny. Jesus will end the Sermon on the Mount by saying, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many mighty miracles? And Jesus will say to them, I I never knew you. Depart from me, workers of iniquity. So Jesus is looking at the 70 and saying, you know, it's great that you can cast out demons. It's good. But let me tell you, there are going to be people who have the ability to cast out demons who are still going to spend eternity in hell. Think about Judas for a second. Judas is one of the 12. You know, when Jesus sends the 12 out to go, to go do the great works that he sends them out to do, he gives them authority to get out there and to do that. You know, no one goes, hey, have you noticed? I mean, we're all preaching the gospel and we're all casting out demons, but Judas, he's not doing anything. Okay, there's no record of that at all. Judas is out there preaching just like the rest of them. Judas is out there casting out demons just like the rest of them. You're like, how is that? Because it's the power of God. Jesus gave Judas the same authority he gave all the other 11. Jesus warns Judas, it'd be better for you that you were never born if you betrayed the Son of Man. Judas doesn't really listen to all that. And he, and, but Judas casts out demons. Judas had the power to cast out demons. Judas had the power to perform all the miracles that all the other 11 did. When it comes the moment at the Last Supper, and Jesus says, one of you will betray me, they don't all go, Judas, it's definitely Judas, no doubt about it. I mean, look at him. Yeah, I haven't seen that guy ever do a miracle. He really, he sticks out around you. Oh, no. They're all like, oh, is it me? 
No one does. Well, if they were to say anything, I suspect what they would say is, well, what we know is we can be sure it's not Judas. I mean, Jesus gave him the money, right? He's got to be the most trusted guy among us. Uh, yeah. Judas has the ability to cast out demons. What you need to rejoice in is not some great miraculous power you may or, by the way, may not have, and I suspect none of us have it. It's okay. It's okay. That's not the measure. The measure is this. Your name is written in heaven. You are recorded in the Lamb's book of life. And when the dead stand before God and the books are open, and another book was open, which is the book of life, that's the book to be written in. That's what we rejoice in. We get out there and we preach the gospel. You know, some, some people will hate us for that. Some people will despise us for that. Some people will immediately dislike you for that. Okay, that is how it is. But there will be people whom God is calling. And he would love nothing more than to use our lives to call them. You have no idea who they are, so speak truth. And see who God calls. Be part of the process that God is doing. The harvest is great. Now we're up to what? Six, seven billion in this world? That's a massive amount of people. They're all going to end up in the great harvest. So get out there and see if you can't get some of them. Speak truth. Speak the gospel. Get some people's names written in the land's book of life. Rejoice in that. That is a work we can all do. Okay, maybe we can't all cast out demons. Eh, Jesus is like, don't rejoice in that anyway. It's, it's not, it's, that's not what really matters. What matters is that your name is written in the book of life. Let's get people's names written in the book of life. Speak the gospel. Jesus died for their sin, in their place. He gave his life for them and us. And we need to acknowledge we are sinners And seek the forgiveness that comes only through the sacrifice of Jesus. Nothing else. Our good works avail us nothing. In fact, they distract us. It's Jesus. That's it. That's what we need to speak. Tell our world. Tell them with a smile. Tell them you've experienced the forgiveness of God. Who knows? God who who God is going to call through that. Who knows what is going to happen? The gospel is a lion. Let it out of the cage. Then stand back and watch the power of God. Let's pray. Lord, there is great power in your name. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to anyone who wishes to believe it. So may we just faithfully speak it. May we declare it. We're in a world that at the moment is terrified of dying. They should be. We're in a world that is in a panic, that is ready to destroy our economy and all of our social interactions and people who want us to completely transform our ability to communicate and interact with one another all out of fear of death. They should be terrified because if they don't have a right relationship with you, they will in fact spend eternity regretting that. May we speak truth. Give us the boldness to declare the forgiveness you so graciously and willingly offer. May we be good ambassadors and stewards of it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.